This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, our friend Larry Gifford gives us a real-life look at Parkinson's disease. Larry is the National Director of Talk Radio for Chorus Entertainment, this company, and he's host of the podcast When Life Gives You Parkinson's. He shares with us about a life-changing procedure that he's going to go through this fall and his personal story battling the disease. Ukrainian foreign policy expert Dr. Yevgenia Gaber joins us from Odessa, Ukraine, with an update on the war and the Black Sea and some of the politics around it and the impact of Turkey on what's changed. And are you okay with lookalikes and Skittles? It's all in the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Larry Gifford is here. Larry is like the boss of the radio things on the talk thing. And so I get to work with Larry very closely. Larry has been on the show a bunch of times and um, he's helped us out with all kinds of things. And one of the things that I, uh, at least I'd like to tell myself that we're helping out by returning is to share the word about Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease, which is Parkinson and Parkinson's disease is technically, I believe, the way it actually goes. Uh, Larry does a podcast um, and uh, uh, you can learn anything about Parkinson's. If Parkinson's comes into your family, um, learning more about it. And our movie of the week is the Michael J. Fox movie, Still. And I have watched the movie and uh, we're going to talk about it on Thursday on the EV Club. And it, for me, it's, um, it was a fascinating look, uh, at what Larry goes through. Now, Larry, you've shared with me many times that, um, some of the, your day to day you've shared with us here on the shift, what, you know, some of the medication things look like, what some of the, um, how, uh, the progression of, of Parkinson's disease for you, what you go through, you've been very open and honest. And I got a whole new look at it through the lens of Michael J. Fox this week. And, um, and, uh, it was quite fascinating. So thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Um, you just got back from vacation slash working. Yeah, I was in Barcelona, Spain for the World Parkinson Congress. You have to say it like Barcelonians do. The Bar- Bar- Barcelona. Barcelona. Yes. Uh, so this is a, this is a, a Congress that happens every three years that was held off an extra year because of COVID. So we had last met four years ago in Japan. Uh, and so this brings together the neurologists, the movement disorder specialists, the nurses, the scientists, the researchers, uh, uh, all of the therapists and the, 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 the pharmaceutical companies and people with Parkinson's and their, and their care partners. So it's, it's, it's one event for all of us to get together and, and we, we share panels together. So we're on, uh, on the same dais. We, we're having lunch together. And for, for many of the researchers, it's the first time they've ever met anybody with Parkinson's and they, they may have been researching for 10 years. That seems weird. That weird? Yeah. You'd think that that would be one of the step one, by the way. Uh, how yeah, about we go to a place not. where you can meet some folks that, that are struggling with this? Yeah, well, you, you, you would think so. But the, the idea is that they, they're so focused on their research and looking for the mitochondria and the, the cell transformations and where's the alpha synuclein and uh, they're, they're, they're trying to solve the, the murder in my brain. Yeah. Uh, they have, you know, they, they, part, partly they don't want to get too close to the per- people because they can't, it's, you know, it, it's, it's science and it's math and it's left brain and you get too emotional into it, it makes it more difficult if you're emotionally attached mm-hmm. um, to, to a person. Uh, I know, I've met, uh, I'm going to have surgery this fall and I've met my surgeon and, and he's very much, uh, he's a nice enough guy, but he's, he keeps his distance. He doesn't want to know too much about you. He's, he has a job to do and he's going to do it regardless of who you are. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to attach a person to it. He's, it's very, very much about, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. Yeah, that must be amazing. What's that experience like for you? I mean, you've got a, obviously a consummate professional that's going to um, go literally dive into your brain. But at the same time, is it um, as you go through this? I mean, I think from if I've learned anything from you in this, that understanding of the people around you and their connection and understanding is an important piece uh, of all this. Is that problematic when you when you meet the doctor or is it or is it a little bit of both? I've met enough of them to realize, you know, 
it's just like when you meet an accountant and they're looking at their shoes. I mean, every 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 industry has their different quirks, and you know, most most aren't uh, gregarious, and they, some of them have a god complex, but they're they're not filling up the room necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's um, I, I can match with them, and I, I appreciate that they are um, being as professional in their trade and and not worried about how who i am or what i'm doing but more worried about let's get this right yeah well i remember i was getting some surgery done on my foot when i was a kid and my dad took me to the liquor store the night before not for me but for him and we stopped in the liquor store and my surgeon was in the liquor store and we had a really fun friendly conversation with my surgeon the night before my surgery see i think i would prefer your doctor (laughs) than my doctor you know what i mean so there is an element of professionalism that goes with that well, th- what they say is you don't want your doctor to get out of routine from any other day, your surgeon. You don't want your surgeon to be out of sync or doing something different, doing a different routine. You want them in their regular routine. So if they golf every day, let them golf every day. If they like, because you want them in, in sync with their, their life so they're not out of sorts. So let's bridge the gap. What's your biggest takeaway from Barcelona and your conference that uh, surprised you or maybe was new to you that impacted you and your world with Parkinson's disease and uh, bridge that gap now going into the fall where you are going to uh, get this surgery that we've talked about here on the shift before. So we'll dig into that in a second. So what, what is your takeaway and that, how does that gap get, get built differently than it was yeah, a couple weeks a, ago? Yeah, I, I think one of the really, uh, there's a couple of cool things that are happening in the Parkinson world and community. Um, there's a lot more collaboration amongst the organizations and amongst the the, the different uh, the, the different bodies that oversee the surgeons or oversee the the, the neurology in general, uh, along with the support group and the uh, like the, the the Parkinson Society of Canada working with. Uh, cure Parkinson's in the UK, working with Parkinson Africa, doing research together, and where before they were all siloed off. So you see a lot more collaboration, which is great because we're not going to solve this individually in our silos. We've, we've got to team our resources and not duplicate our efforts. Um, and I think the other thing is really understanding that the the subtyping of Parkinson's is just around the corner. So you remember in the 80s when you used to get cancer, she's got the cancer. Yeah. Exactly. Well, now you don't get the cancer. You you get breast cancer. You get, you know, you know, like uh, lymph nodes or leukemia, cancer. You get yeah. whatever, whatever kind of cancer, eye cancer. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've got all these different types of cancer. Melanoma. Melanoma. Um, so right now you can, you just get diagnosed with Parkinson's. Right. But but there's so many different uh, types of Parkinson's along the spectrum. They have to identify how how to you know, maybe, maybe it'll be how you, uh, what triggered your Parkinson's or were you born with it or uh, were you uh, exposed to chemicals? And that may change the way they treat you. Mm-hmm. Did it start in the gut? Did it start in the brain? Right. You know, so there's all these things that they're discovering now, yeah. which is uh, going to lead to some really good discoveries. Well, in the still documentary, Michael J. Fox talks about his pinky finger, right? His left hand and his pinky finger. He, he speaks about that quite you know, as he was trying to continue to work. So um, it does start differently. You've shared with us before, Larry, but how did it start for you? It started uh, with uh, my uh, walk with me, uh, just sort of noticing that I was, my walk was out of sync and I was having trouble like lifting and like, it's almost like I forgot how to walk. And so it would clomp down and slap the pavement. It would you know, you couldn't take a quiet walk in the woods with, with, with my wife because it was just I was just like, it's like I was a stammering young fowl, uh, just <laughs> like a baby calf trying to find to my footing, find a, like a baby calf trying to find its way. Right. Yeah. Um. He Michael J. Fox talks about um talking to his wife, and I know that you've spoken about your wife so many times about how um integral that relationship has been, the partnership, your co-parenting um, together as a couple and all of those pieces of the puzzle. So I just thought I would, um, because he, in in the still, he didn't tell the public for a very long time and they showed some video of his uh, clips from Spin City where nobody knew yet and you could see and he showed how he was masking his left arm and, and the, the, yeah. the tremors and the fidgets and all the things that were going on. And you could actually see it where his hand is like totally seized to the side, but he's masking it. And if you weren't looking for it, you probably wouldn't have noticed. 
Um, but he didn't tell anybody for a long time. And at some point, you've got to go back to your partner and and have that conversation, Lair. And that was that. I even feel like asking the question diminishes the question. I can imagine that must have been terrifying as a man going back to your partner and having to say, how was your day, by the way? Well, it was not quite like that, but I would say it was the first time I went to the neurologist, I went to uh, an MS neurologist because I thought I might have MS, but we, we, we we didn't really comprehend that. So I went by myself. And um, I got out of there and the, the doc said, oh, good news, bad news. The good news is you don't have MS. The bad news is I think you have Parkinson's, but I can't diagnose you. So we're gonna have to get you an appointment with the, the, the neuro, another neurologist. And I called my wife and I told her that. I said, so they think I have Parkinson's. And we're, we're both like, we didn't know what to think about that. Um, and kind of, Took, took us both back a step. Um, and um, over the course of the next six months before we saw the next neurologist, um, we, we had a lot of talks. Um, and you know, sometimes I was angry. And you know, even after I, we, the official diagnosis came, you, know, you go through the, the stages of grief because you know, you're, you're grieving your future plans. You're grieving your past uh, yeah, you're grieving the past you when you were capable. Um, and then you're, you you feel bad because you've committed to this marriage to this other person who did not sign up for this. Um, and it is like it, once you have a, a chronic disease, it's it's for the whole family. It's not just not just you dealing with it on your own. If, you know, even if they didn't want to you know, be a part of what I was doing. I, my every day impacts them too. With maybe I don't feel well. I was supposed to go to lunch with my son on Saturday, and I couldn't muster the strength to do it. I was just out of gas. Um, you know, just things like that happen on a day-to-day basis, and they have to adapt. Um, and so it's 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 a difficult conversation. But what uh, what what is great about the relationship that my wife and I have is that we're both communicators by by trade. And, it, and so it comes naturally to us, although we have to keep reinventing how we communicate because the Parkinson's masks my facial expressions and it, it, it takes away my abilities to really understand nuance. And so I take everything at face value and I don't notice that she's maybe saying something in jest or she's, you know, uh, being ironic or, you know, and so it gets harder and harder, especially if I'm coming off my pills before I take my next pill. Yeah, the, the, so. the down. Well, that's what uh, Michael J. Fox calls it, uh, waiting for the bus. Yeah. Um, as he describes where he takes the pill and the bus is coming, but the pill hasn't hit yet. Um, and he yeah. calls it that, that time of, of waiting, f- waiting for the bus. So uh, most people, I think, listening to this show might not know your success uh, in talk radio. I mean, you had a long career in talk radio, but I mean, you are the boss of this particular uh, group, you know, all these channels, and you don't get there by being a chump. You get there by uh, being successful and intelligent. Your history as being a communicator, I mean, you were all over uh, network shows, some of the biggest network shows people have ever heard out of the States, and so much more. And as a communicator, though, there is that, and forgive my language if I don't get it quite right, I would love your clarification, but a bit of a disconnect and short circuit. And I think I understood it when Michael J. Fox was talking about texting, replying text to people, and how um, one of his daughters had said, you texted me, I hope you're happy with your life choices or something like that. And he was like, well, I, I wanted to say I love you and I miss you and all those things, but it just came up, blah, 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 blah. And right. so that's all I could get out today. Um, as a communicator though, Larry, um, how, how, what's that experience like to know that in your brain, it, I'm assuming you're forming it, you're emotive, like you're still loving Larry who is caring and kind and takes care of those things, but sometimes it doesn't communicate or come out. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that are trapped up there that I want to say that I it's it's for whatever reason i can't you know the, for whatever reason because of the parkinson's the park what the parkinson's does is it it 
it has, has basically killed off my dopamine producing brain cells. Dopamine is what you use to transmit thoughts into action. So you've got this thought up here, but if with no dopamine, you can't make it happen. You can't control your body. You can't control how, how you talk. You can't control how you walk. You can't control how you pick up a cup of coffee. Um, and so you know, we, the pills that we take are, are, are dopamine replacement, but they don't always work fully and, and they don't work 24 hours a day. So that's why we spill things and we knock it, knock it into desks, but it's also why we can't communicate so well. Um, and it's, it's there. It's, it's, it is like being trapped inside of a body that doesn't belong to you. Like it's, you can't control it anymore. So you're like in a foreign, you know, yeah. spaceship and you don't know how to use the controls. It, do you find your thought process is similar as it would have been in the past and it just isn't to come out or do you find your thoughts, are you cognitively aware that your thoughts are, are the same or changed? They, it feels like I'm doing things the way I've always done them. Um, but it's like I switched languages on my brain and now my brain doesn't understand what I'm thinking. Yeah. Okay. I just to acknowledge that, just so you know, is that never once have I ever not felt like you have not been clear to me. You've always been clear. It's always been kind. It's always been helpful, ridiculously helpful, I would say. Um, and, uh, just to acknowledge that fact, I mean, in the years that I've known you, like I've, it's never not been that way. So whatever you're doing from my perspective is, uh, incredibly kind and loving and helpful. And, uh, the mentorship is, is the same, like nothing. It's always been that way. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, the, the, the key is to know what you need. And so I know I need a nap every day and I know I need to take my pills every two hours. And I know I, you know, there's certain things that I, I, if I have something coming up, I only schedule so many meetings per day so I can be focused and on for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. But you only have about three or four events in a day that you can commit yourself to. Right. Um, and then you're out of gas. Larry Gifford is our guest here on The Shift. Larry's part of the Shifthead family behind the scenes making this happen every day. Larry lives with Parkinson's disease. Larry mentioned the surgery that he's getting. And a few months ago, we had a very special guest on speaking about the benefits of this surgery as he got it. And this was what it sounded like. This is a whole new guy then for you. Oh my gosh, this, this is the old George. That oh, you I remember from so long ago? Years yeah. ago, yeah. He's, he's come so far. Like He used to fall down a lot. He had really bad balance issues. I mean, we even had a an occupational therapist come into the house and we got him a walker and everything because we didn't know if he was going to be a candidate for this surgery or not. We, you know, we didn't know what to expect. And, uh, I mean, my heavens now, he takes our two biggest dogs for walks together. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, um, it's an 80 pound dog. Yeah, one of them is 80 pounds. So. Wow. That's, yeah. That's a conversation from over a year ago with George Martin. George has Parkinson's, and then he had the surgery with the post in the head. And that's his girlfriend on there, too, by the way. Uh, well, wife now. They've since been married. That sounds like an incredibly positive outcome. Larry, is that the same surgery that you're getting this fall? It's, it's similar. It's the same. Uh, it's called DBS, deep brain stimulation. Um, and I th think he was using a Boston Scientific or a uh, uh, another company. I'm I'm going to be using uh, a, a different device. The device that I have will have two rods going in uh, to either side of my brain, um, and they will um, basically it will um, allow st electric stimulation to do the work that the replacement dopamine has been doing. So then they'll, they'll also implant a, like a pacemaker for my brain into my chest. I'll have a remote control that I can sort of dial it up and dial it, dial it down as I, as I like. But what, what it does is um, as good as I am at any given time on my medication, they can get me to that point 24 hours a day. Which, how does that feel for you, that notion? That, oh God, that's exciting. Is it? Yeah. What's one thing that you hope to get back? That you that's it you get sometimes but it's inconsistent but you hope to get back oh i i think i i'd, I'd like to get back motivation mm. like and and just um the ability to walk um normally 
without having to think so hard about it. Yeah. Like everything I do um, has become something I have to think about doing. Yeah. I met you the first time you were walking. Do you know that? Oh, yeah. I was in to see Catherine. I was just in town for a meeting. I was only doing some fill-in stuff here and there, and you were walking. I remember you walked by, and I was like, oh, boy, he must be busy. But in hindsight, um, you were walking at the time, and I and I have learned now that it was possible that just walking was so focused on your mind that you just came across as busy guy. Oh yeah. It's, people say, I, Hey, I yelled your name and you didn't, you didn't say anything. I'm like, sorry, I was focused on walking mm -hmm. and you know, it's really easy for me to, you know, if I'm not paying attention to the walking, that the walking stops, like I look up to talk to you mm -hmm. and then I forget what my feet are doing. And then I tumble over and I, I fall. There's an amazing video at the beginning of still where Michael J. Fox turns to the fan says, hello, Mr. Fox. And he turns and trips. Yeah. And he says, exactly. and what he says, like, oh, you, you overwhelmed me or you knocked me off my feet. Me off my feet. <laughs> and she laughs. Um, but that's exactly what happened, as you just described, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and then the other thing that I have is uh, I have vivid dreaming. Uh, and it's, I act out my dreams. Oh, wow. Because uh, I'm not paralyzed when I sleep, mm -hmm. like most people are. Because, again, that's Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, uh, <laughs> so, like, at the conference, middle of the night, I, just was, I was at a great dream where I was attacking somebody. I dove right off the bed into the nightstand oh, and cut my nose open. Oh no. Yeah. I mean, but that stuff you'll, you'll notice that people with Parkinson's have a lot of band-aids. Yeah. <laughs> I did notice that actually. <laughs> um, that's quite fascinating. Uh, okay. So you're going to go for your surgery and um, I have a favor to ask if you get a remote control for this thing, like it'd be great if you just give me like the login just for fun. Sure. Yeah. You and my son, right? <laughs> but you might get Lego back with your son, right? More so <laughs> than, than you already have Lego. You love Lego. Yeah. I do love Lego and it's, it's actually great for uh, sort of occupational therapy for my fine motor skills. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that even that notion alone, as simple as that might be in the grand scheme of first world life problems, but what a beautiful thing that would be able to, to do more of. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you really don't know what you're going to get back a hundred percent, but you know it's going to affect the motor skills mostly. But there's you know everybody kind of gets a little bit something different back, and so it's, it's exciting, and they and you can get some stuff that you don't want too. So they could. Uh, maybe they get out of there and it's affected my voice. Well, now the device I'm getting, they can retune it after it's embedded into my brain hmm. from from external. So and this is new within the last year and a half that they can do this where they can readjust and turn off like a third of the valve towards the bottom, middle or top no of way. the rod. Yeah. Wow. So it doesn't spray that part of the brain or whatever. Really? Hey, that's yeah. exciting. Really? When you think about it, that's off the charts. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. And, and so um, the surgery I'm going to get, they're going to drill into my head uh, and I'm going to be awake for that um, surgery, um, and which is weird, mm, but that's weird. You don't, your brain has no pain receptors. Mm -hmm. So they'll numb my skull and then they'll drill in there and I'll feel like the pressure, but I won't feel the, it won't hurt. And then your brain has no pain receptors, so you, they can squish around in your brain as much as they want. <laughs> I don't know if squish around is the right word, Larry. <laughs> I guess it's probably accurate. I, I, I had an MRI the other day. I said, how's my brain? He goes, ah, it's nice and squishy. Oh, boy. I think that's a lot. As a person who gets grossed out by body things like that, like <laughs> I have so many injuries. Like, well, I passed out. I went for an MRI on my shoulder um, just a few weeks ago, and I passed out just from the needles when they put the injections in. So that's just to be uh, clear, that's not a you thing, that's a yeah. me thing. Well, I will tell you that uh, what you see on still is amazing. Uh, keep in mind, Michael J. Fox has had this disease for over 30 years. Yeah. At least he's been diagnosed over 30 years. When, when people say, how long have you had it? They're asking, when were you diagnosed? But I can tell you, I can go back in time and my symptoms started 20 years before my diagnosis and the symptoms wouldn't come until I'd lost 60% of my brain cells. So you, how far back does it go? I don't know. Wow. There's a, a line that Michael J. Fox says, and I'm curious to see um, what this gives you. He says, you're still in the game if you have a chip and a chair. Uh, the game being the poker game. You still have a chip left and a chair to sit in. Yeah. This surgery that you're going to get now, 
Um, it's a chip. You already have a chip. You already have a chair. Um, it's almost like you're getting a whole new stack of chips. How do you look at that? Yeah, for me, this extends uh, my ability to um, provide for my family for the next 10, 15 years where I thought this I, I could be in the twilight of my career without it. Uh, just because it gets harder and harder to do my job effectively and efficiently. And uh, so I, this is this is exciting for me. Uh, it also makes me uh, more present for my family, which is something that I'm looking forward to. Um, and hopefully I won't be in my uh, little Parkinson's bubble where I just sort of get lost in my own thoughts all the time. Um, and um, it, yeah, it's it's exciting for me. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's weird to say you're excited for somebody to drill into your head and put some rods in there, but like, it's, it's a game changer. And if, you know, if you've ever been trapped inside something, like, let's say you've been trapped inside your basement and they won't let you out mm -hmm. like when you were a kid or trapped inside of a, you know, a, a chest or trapped, trapped inside of your car or whatever, yeah. where you couldn't get out. I'm trapped inside my body and they're about to unleash it. That must be amazing. I, um, the notion of all that, I think that you and I are very similar in a couple of ways about, you know, we have both worked through our careers really hard and really dedicated to try to take on new things, push things forward, try new things. Um, we're, and, but that gobbled up an awful lot of my time and my attention. And you and I have shared with each other privately that, you know, presence to family has become so incredibly important and almost a new learning tool as we realize the importance of family in some of these things. And at the same time though, this natural um, dad, husband, whatever you want to call it, provider thing, I think most men not all men, but most men go through that. There's a natural um, woven provider notion. And to me, I'm hearing that the ability to reset all of that and be able to live into that part of you, because that's really where I've always heard that you've really grown as a man away from all the rest of it. Um, that, that, must be the, that must be the new stakes in the poker game, hey? Well, I think it's really important. Um, and it's such so hard to be a care caregiver or a, a partner in Parkinson's um, because there's it's doesn't turn off. And so you're constantly trying to, you know, take like my wife is trying to take care of herself. She's trying to take care of our son and she's trying to take care of me and make sure that I'm not going to, you know, take a wrong turn or step off into traffic or you know, I'm not always aware of my surroundings. I'm not always aware, you know, I get anxious and anxiety crowds and so like she's she's always on and so if i can be more together <laughs> more more me and less parkinson's um that just benefits us both and relieves a lot of stress mm -hmm. hopefully over the course of the next couple five ten years i have a really cheesy metaphor that i always think of for that in relationships i think it works though it becomes the opportunity just to carry a couple of grocery bags um when you're coming home from the grocery store, you know? Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, well, instead of trying to lift a keg over your that's head, right. and carry it. Yeah. Or the old way, carry all the bags to carrying none of the bags. Right. And now you're able to carry a few of the bags in the house, which would be right. uh, as simple as that is as realistic as it gets too. Right. Yeah, for sure. So you're going on your journey in the fall. Uh, I do have a request uh, plus an invitation, of course, which would be to include us so we can pass this on uh, as you're comfortable. Uh, invitation, of course, is to be here and share this uh, anytime that you're comfortable um, sure. and, and do that. I think that because it's not the thing that reminder for everybody is that this conversation is about Parkinson's disease, but it's not only about Parkinson's. Like you said, it started with possibly MS, but not MS. People are going through changes in their partners at home, whether it is cancer or whether it is Parkinson's, whether it is um, Alzheimer's, whether it is a broken leg and not able to work anymore. People are going through change always. And I think this really gives everybody an opportunity to listen from, uh, into the listening of change, into the listening of presence, 
uh, of gratitude as opposed to control, right? And I think that that's a real gift, Larry. So if you'd help us give that, I'd be grateful. Yeah, and I would just leave you with um, one in three people will be diagnosed with a brain disorder in their lifetime. It's the leading cause of disability in the world and the second leading cause of death. So we need to take it seriously as, as a population and we need to come together to end it. PD Avengers is the podcast. Uh, PD Avengers is the organization I started. Oh, right. PDAvengers.com, uh, which uh, we're bringing together um, the nations of the world. So we have 135 partners. We've got 95 different countries involved. Uh, then the podcast is When Life Gives You Parkinson's. When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Thank you. Um, Larry, thank you for all this. Appreciate it. Welcome home. Thank you. Take care. This is the Shift Podcast. Over the last couple of weeks, um, the storylines out of Odessa, Ukraine, have become more and more active, let's say. Uh, let's go backwards in time just a little bit as Ukraine starts to put more of a squeeze on Russia from the invasion and then the Crimea Bridge. Boy, oh boy, that one sure hits them hard. They hit it again. This one they actually took credit for. Uh, Ukraine doesn't have a habit of taking credit for some of these things, uh, which I think is quite sneaky politically. It's a great way to go because you never really know, at least uh, publicly. So the bridge to Crimea got hit again, and all of these things were happening with cluster munitions, and most of the world doesn't use cluster munitions. Canada bans them. America hasn't. And But here's the thing. So America gave cluster munitions to Ukraine. They're ugly. They are ugly. War is ugly. Russia shouldn't complain much because they also have not banned them, right? Like, so this is one of those things about fight fire with fire. And we all agree that war is terrible. Nobody wants war. But in order to get rid of the war, sometimes it's going to have to get ugly. And that's when things really started to escalate in the distractions. The Black Sea, the grain deal and all of that. So joining us now is Dr. Evgenia Gaber. She's in Odessa, Black Sea expert and all-around fantastic person who's very generous with her time with us, uh, traveling from conferences and doing all these smart people things that, that these think tank people do. Um, but you are in Odessa. You're, you're spending the summer at home, and you are back. We've spoken to you from all around the world. Um, how, how is home? How is it to be back home and see family? Let's start there. Yeah, good night, everyone. Hi, Shane. Uh, it's great to be home, even when it's bombed and shelled, because home is always a home. So I'm enjoying my time in Odessa. It's getting tough sometimes, but Odessa is still beautiful. And Odessa in summer is even more beautiful than in any other uh, season of the uh, year. So we are still trying to enjoy our life, just occasionally spending some time in bomb shelters. But other than that, we're doing okay. Some people might say that you've gone a little bit mad, Evgenia, because the um, the notion of going home for the summer for vacation to a city that's getting bombed and shelled and rockets and drones, um, that takes a special love affair <laughs> to to go home and do that. And But it's important to you to be there, isn't it? Uh, yes, and that's uh, a crazy love, a mad love, as you as you named it. But uh, any, anyways, I spend a lot of time at home. Uh, the problem is for think tankers that we have to travel a lot. And because the sky is closed and we cannot travel from, we cannot take a flight from Odessa airport, I have to do it uh, from other countries like Moldova, for example, or Poland. So it takes me five, six hours normally to travel to the closest airport before I go elsewhere. And that's why sometimes I just spend some time in Turkey, in Canada, or in other countries. But when I can, I do want to spend this time in Odessa. And that's not only for me, that's for many Ukrainians who prefer to stay in Ukraine and to fight back uh, and to be part of this fight. Yeah, and that, that's an amazing, uh, inspir inspiring uh, experience to see the love of the country and for the amount of people that stay home and even the people that we've spoken to say young students that receive scholarships to go be able to study because their schools were closed through you know COVID into into the war uh even they really struggle with um i'm not quite sure how i can go home with my education and with my new life but at the same time they they really wish they were there and 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 that's it, it's strange from the outside but it's also not my home right 
it must be scary at times, but at the same time, you talked about some normalcy with friends. So what does that look like? Can you maybe just paint a summer snapshot for us of what what you try to get done in a normal day when you're not hiding in a bomb shelter from Russian bombs and drones? Well, I can tell you just two pictures to imagine, and then uh, you can you can probably say which one you prefer. One thing is you are staying somewhere in a very nice place, uh, chilling out in European capitals or somewhere in Canada, for example, just enjoying chipmunks nature and all this nice stuff that you guys have in Canada. And then you just uh, get some notifications coming to your phone that your hometown is being bombed. And you know that your parents are there, your friends and your beloved ones are there and you are not. And you don't know what is happening to them. And you try to reach out to them and you cannot because there is problem with mobile connection and Internet. And that's hell, because until the moment you get connected to them, I can tell you this is not something you want to experience in your life. And then another situation is when you are inside the whole situation. So you are in Odessa. Uh, it's 3 a.m., for example, like now, and you're just chilling out somewhere with your beer on the beach, uh, close to the beach, because the beaches are uh, unfortunately mined as well as the Black Sea is. But still, there are all these bars and uh, discos sometimes. Uh, and then you have, uh, you know, just stay with your friends. And there is major attack on your city. And then uh, you have like five, six different types of missiles and drones attacking uh, UNESCO protected heritage in the city center and attacking um, some major residential areas with just people sleeping there, enjoying their life there. So on the one hand, it's hell again. Uh, it's awful. But on the other hand, you are inside it. So you know what happens to you, to your beloved ones, etc., etc. So for many of us, psychologically, it's easier to be inside uh, this situation rather than just watch it from outside and never know what happens to those whom you love. It's the opposite of the cliche of no news is good news is what we will often say in normal life. And in this particular case, it's the opposite. No news is not good. And at least knowing what's going on lets you adapt and move, which is quite fascinating. Uh, Evgenia Gaber is in Odessa. Now, you talked about UNESCO site. There was a rocket attack or something of the nature that did hit a UNESCO site in Odessa. Help us understand what this was. It was a big old heritage building, I believe. Yeah. And um, and that. What was the importance of it to, to Ukrainians and to the folks that live in Odessa? So help us understand what it was because it got blown up. Yeah, well, that was not one single building. Uh, now we have uh, a list of 25 up to 30 uh, historical buildings which were damaged or completely destroyed by this attack. Just uh, in uh, January, February this year, I believe uh, the uh, historic downtown of Odessa completely was uh, included in the uh, World Heritage List of UNESCO. And Ukrainian diplomats had uh, worked quite a lot to actually make this happen because we knew that something like this uh, might happen in the future. So at least if this happens, because for Russia, UNESCO is just the same as United Nations. It's another tool uh, to blackmail the world and you, just to violate uh, international law. But at least if this happens, then we can uh, get reconstruction uh, easier and then we can get some uh, international support in those matters. So that happened in uh, in winter. And then uh, this was the first major attack on the historic city center. And there are two things which are important. One is cathedral. That's a, an Orthodox cathedral. And that's the biggest in Odessa and in the south of Ukraine. And it's an interesting because it was initially built in 1794. So that was the year of the foundation of Odessa itself. And then it was destroyed by the communists uh, in 1936 uh, because they were, as you know, atheists against any kind of religion. And then Odessans actually donated to get it rebuilt. And it was opened again in the early 2000s. And people were like bringing whatever they had, silver spoons, uh, some jewelry, if, if they didn't have money, but they wanted to have this cathedral. So now it was bombed and almost completely destroyed again. And the other thing was uh, the so-called scientist's house. And that's also part of the heritage, but that's also part of my own heritage because I spent years and years there with my colleagues from the university. That was a place for professors, um, students to meet. And, uh, you know, that was just part of our daily life. Very nice uh, yard, very nice garden, 
So Odessa spent some time there. But that's, uh, again, that's uh, part of our life now. So we have uh, to rebuild. Russians destroy, we rebuild. They destroy, we rebuild. That's how it works. It's gone that way for a long time, too. So that's the thing. Right. Um, okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Black Sea. You said the mines in the Black Sea. Uh, it was a year ago. We were sitting here, you and I, having this exact same conversation. It was a year ago when, you know, the negotiating about can Ukrainian grain get out of the country? And then the leverage came along and, and the deal was far from perfect. They reneged on it a bunch of times and then it was used. I mean, there was no real manifests about whether the grain was Ukrainian and were they smuggling Russian grain out under the disguise of this, this agreement. There was an awful lot going on that made it quite ugly. The reality is, though, is that Ukrainian grain, although some of it's stolen and so much more, it did get out which is good for the economy of Ukraine. It's good for the um, the economies in Africa that needed the food and needed the grain. I mean, so far from perfect, but it worked. And not a big surprise that here we are again heading towards harvest. And what is the number one thing that happens again? And I don't want to say that, that these guys are predictable, Yevgenia, but they're predictable. Like how anybody's surprised at this point about what comes from Russian politicians in this? I, I don't. It doesn't, it's almost like script. Oh, yeah. And I think it's uh, just craziness when you uh, keep doing the same things and then uh, you expect to have a different result. And that's what, unfortunately, we see now. Still, there are uh, so many people who try to negotiate with Russians and who even think that Russia is a credible partner. So when the grain deal was inked uh, last year, the first thing that uh, I wrote actually for um, for one of the uh, newspapers in Canada uh, was that uh, it's still too early to uh, open champagne because uh, that's that's not going to work because that's not how Russia generally does things. And exactly during this year, Russia has done everything to uh, undermine the process, to abstract it from within, uh, to prevent Ukrainian vessels or other vessels uh, coming for Ukrainian uh, grain and calling visits to Ukrainian ports from actually getting into the Black Sea. I'm not going into details, but the Russian inspectors who were there, who were supposed to check and uh, inspect the vessels, they were trying to delay the whole process, uh, to do everything possible to um, decrease the number of vessels coming in and out. But anyways, now it, it uh, again, uh, it stopped. Uh, Russia said that uh, it quits uh, the whole deal. So there are no vessels coming in and out. And because Russia, again, uh, they are coward and they are afraid of attacking NATO vessels uh, or NATO territorial waters like Turkish or Bulgarian, Romanian. But that's how they intimidate people. They talk about escalation. So nothing happened there. But they do attack Odessa and uh, seaport infrastructure. They do attack um, grain silos. So uh, unfortunately, it's not only about World Heritage sites, but also about huge terminals and silos with thousands of tons of grain and corn and barley that cannot go to African countries. They are being shelled. And then again, they bomb all other infrastructure, like logistical infrastructure, to prevent Ukraine from exporting its grain uh, with alternative routes, like via the Danube River, for example. If you imagine the map, there is also these kind of river ports, uh, or just with railway to Poland and Slovakia, because that's also tough. Uh, that's a question of competition for farmers in Poland and Slovakia. So we have this bunch of problems, but the result is that there are thousands of tons of uh, crop in Ukraine with new crops coming in August and September, and there is no possibility to export and to um, to send them to those countries who are in need. Now, you have your expertise in the, the Black Sea and those uh, delightful neighbors that are all around there, which is, includes, you know, Turkey and Georgia and everybody that's sort of in that pocket of the world. Turkey's tune, though. Turkey has uh, been an interesting one in the last six months, and I've been looking forward to asking you. Turkey backed away from their objection for Sweden, and that's a that's a big shift because that access for that to get into for Sweden to get in really blocks sea routes for St. Petersburg and all those places up in Russia. I mean, that's a big one. And do you see a change in this? Turkey's doing what's best for Turkey. I mean, th that's what they're doing, but they've got. They're going to choose their neighbor here. 
and they're going to choose their neighbor. Is it going to be Russia? Which is looks like they're that they've become that weird uncle, that pain in the butt neighbor that you always fight. They're just high maintenance. And then you've got Ukrainians who want to do business, who want to live like a, a, a global economy and do all that. It seems to me now, this is my observation. It is not an expert observation and nor it is an educated one. My vocabulary is even probably wrong. Seems to me that they're, they're choosing the peaceful neighbors and they're starting to see the, the path of least resistance here. Well, I think that your uh, comment is uh, absolutely expert and your wording is perfect as well, because that's what's happening. Uh, Turkey is um, always thinking of its own national interests, which is probably the right thing to do. And now uh, Turkey's national interests dictate it that uh, relations with Ukraine and with the West uh, are much more uh, beneficial and much less risky than those with Russia. So um, the problem with Sweden was not that much about uh, Russia's trying to Russia's attempts to to block the whole NATO membership bid and doing that with the help of official Ankara, but rather Turkey's own interest. So they wanted uh, Sweden to fight with uh, terrorism. They wanted uh, the U.S. to provide F-16s. They wanted some more attention to problems of uh, Turkey itself. But when they got uh, a lot of this, not everything, but a lot from this list, they actually said that we're okay with Sweden um, making its way to NATO. Uh, I have to say here that it's not yet a done deal because there is also ratification process in the Turkish parliament, and that's now uh, postponed till October. Uh, so that's just a declaration by the Turkish president. And I do believe Turkey will wait for uh, some F-16 modernization kits, at least, to come to Turkey before it um, ratifies the Sweden membership bid. But still, it's it's on its way. And with Ukraine, it's just as you put it. When you have Russia, who is trying to dominate in the Black Sea and to occupy Ukraine, and you have Ukraine, which is about business connection, uh, personal ties, uh, military defense cooperation, uh, yeah, obviously Turkey being irrational, and very, um, not only rational, but also pragmatic actor. Of course, it chooses uh, Ukraine, uh, NATO, the West to Russia. Well, when you do the math and you look at who's next on the list, there's only one country blocking that port. And there's only one more country next along that coastline. And that's Turkey. So if nobody steps in the way, the writing is on the wall of where the stress is going to come from next, because that that's an integral part for exporting grain and all these things. So it seems uh, quite obvious. Now, when Erdogan re-won Turkey, um, did you anticipate that this was going to be the shift that happened after re-winning the election? Or, I mean, people kind of thought it was going to be more status quo. Uh, well, actually, I was saying from the very beginning that whoever wins, and that was a very um, tight competition, as you know, uh, there will be uh, two major uh, changes. One of them uh, coming from the economic bloc, because with this uh, unorthodox uh, financial policies of Erdogan, it was clear that uh, the Turkish economy would collapse. Uh, with this low um, dunking rates, that was impossible to uh, keep economy going. So there were some negotiations. There had been negotiations before elections uh, with the more uh, liberal and pro-Western uh, names. Uh, and those names actually uh, became... Uh, Minister of Finance and Treasury, uh, head of Central Bank. So those names actually were appointed uh, as, a, as leading positions in the economic financial bloc. So I was expecting this to happen. And another thing is about this uh, normalization of relations with the West, uh, because it never happens 100% pro-Western or pro-Russian or pro-Gulf countries or anything else. But this balance is important. And before the uh, re-election, uh, that was too much of anti-Western, uh, very nationalistic, hardcore rhetoric, because this is how you get your people mobilized to go and vote for you and not for your pro-Western uh, opposition uh, candidate. But once the election is won, you have to think about business, you have to think about investments, reconstruction of economy after the earthquake. So that again brings this more uh, balanced approach with Turkey 
tilting against westward. So those were probably two main shifts that I was expecting, and uh, actually that's what happened. I don't know how many uh, Russian humanitarian charities showed up after the election, but the amount that showed up from Europe and from the Western world was quite staggering. So uh, that probably doesn't hurt um, either in the big picture of what's uh, in the best uh, interest of Ukraine as well. Uh, from Odessa, it's been very active joining us here, uh, Dr. Evgenia Gaber. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time. It's great to see your face. I appreciate you and, and being so generous to join us here on The Shift. Thank you for having me and good night to everyone. This is The Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with some stories that might make you ponder? Your comments are welcome. 877-399-9898. Are you okay with? Now, if you listen to the shift last night, <laughs> you would have heard the cluster that was this. Are you okay with that? We never did actually do costume contests. Oh, finally, we're doing this one. Uh, yes, costume contests are amazing. I've never really been in one, but I like to watch them, specifically the giant nerdy ones at conventions when people show up in costumes that they spent thousands of probable of hours working on and hundreds of dollars to put together eat for mm -hmm. these ultimate prizes. That's fun. There's a lot of work that goes into those. It's, it's pretty sweet. Got it. I would say that I've shared my opinions on costumes many, many times. I think costume contests are super fun. Some people mm -hmm. take them way too seriously, but costumes, I, my view is a little different. I think days like Halloween, these are the days when we dress up what we truly wish we could dress up like. I challenge that. 364 days of the year that's when we wear our actual costumes and pretend to fit in so that's philosophical and i'm a hippie but whatever um costume contests are super fun especially when you can do it like couples and the theme and stuff like that many people practice for years to get their performance with their costume on just right and it happens in florida <laughs> I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. Almost 140 bearded men who resemble Ernest Hemingway converged on Key West, the late author's home during the 1930s, to compete in the Hemingway Lookalike Contest. The challenge is a highlight of the island's Hemingway Days Festival that salutes... The literary talent and adventurous life of the Nobel Prize winning writer. You're looking at Ernest Hemingway's crowned lookalike in the coveted contest in Key West. After Garrett Marshall's big win, he tells me tonight he's been a big fan of Hemingway, and with one look at his own white beard, he thought he had a good shot at this competition. Well, that was 11 years ago. On his 11th attempt at the title, Marshall took home the prize at Sloppy Joe's Bar, where the real Hemingway often gathered with friends back in the 1930s. Marshall triumphed over nearly 140 other participants. The key to his success, he tells me he showed the judges who he really was. Congrats to him. Uh, WMTV. How do you win an Ernest Hemingway competition by being yourself, not Ernest Hemingway? I don't. Also, I why think you're Ernest right. Hemingway? This is such well, a his festival. It, it would be weird if it was the Ernest Hemingway festival and they're like, we're going to have an R2D2 contest. I know. It's just such a specific. It's just such a... I, I shouldn't be asking why. It's Florida. I mean, it makes total sense. It's just like... It's the kind of thing where you travel and you find out that the town you're staying in has just a bizarre festival that nobody really knows about outside of the town. And then you're like, okay, mm -hmm. I'll go watch it. It's like that. But mm -hmm. turn up to a million because it's in Florida. Turned up to a million. Yes. Very good. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's... Uh, I mean, I get the theory. 
But I, I just don't know if it's like, wow, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look like Ernest Hemingway. That would be very tweedy of me. Um, closely observed by a judging panel of previous winners, including 2022's John Oval of Dade City, Florida, contestants take turns pontificating and parading around Sloppy Joe's stage. Are, are we still talking about the same contest? Yeah. Yes. Yes. The bar where this happens, the stage is called Sloppy Joe's. Mm-hmm. As yeah. well as the contest and other festival events, the lookalikes focus on raising scholarship funds for Keys students, which is nice. That's good. The Hemingway Lookalike Society president, David Douglas, estimated that they amassed close to $125,000 during the festival in 2023. That's a hefty chunk of change. A lot of money. Uh, Hemingway Days salutes the vigorous lifestyle and literary legacy of the Nobel Prize winning author who wrote enduring classics, including For Whom the Bell Tolls, and To Have and Have Not, while living in Key West from 1931 until late 1939. Well, the, uh, I, don't, I haven't read any of the books, but For Whom the Bell Tolls by Metallica. It's a great song. So I'll take Absolutely. Some, yeah. I would, yeah, I'm surprised I don't have Talica playing there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Why? I mean, that, that would seem like the, the honest way to go. Yeah, now, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, Ernest Hemingway, there are a lot of photos of him without beards, though. <laughs> it wasn't until he was older that he even had one, I think. I was he reading that they really lean into the dad, like the, the, the dad phase earning Hemingway, like kind of that, that vibe of I've retired in Florida and I'm going to look like it. Well, I mean, he did grow a pretty white, big old beard, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. when he was in Florida. When he was in Florida, he was kind of a young, like, I don't know. It's weird. Everything about that's weird. Everything about (laughs) it makes no sense whatsoever, which I honestly, I'm all for. Maybe, maybe you show up and maybe you have the beard. Maybe you show up, you have the mustache. You can pick your, your Hemingway era. Mm -hmm. Era. So there we go. All right. Are you okay with Skittles? Uh, yes. I don't often go for Skittles when there are other candies available, but I don't dislike them. You know, like if I could pick a pack of Smarties or a pa- or like a bag of Skittles, I'm probably going to go the Smarties, even the M&Ms. Uh, mm. And like if I could have Sour Patch Kids or Skittles, I'm going to go Sour Patch Kids. But I think Skittles are s- still like a step above licorice. Still good. Oh, not a step above licorice. Licorice is the best. Um, th- yeah, no. no I think the Twizzlers is, is hands down the best. Never in my life have I gone into a gas station looking for road trip snacks and gone... You know what would be perfect right now? Skittles. Yeah, because they get everywhere. You know. Yeah, well, they're they're Please. terrible. I mean, they're just sugar balls, colored sugar balls. Yes. But the um, but if I'm going and I'm like at a party and there's a little pack of Skittles there, yeah, I have a couple of little Skittles. They stick in your teeth and all that stuff. But I just think mm-hmm. there's so much better, so much better than Skittles. Like you said, there's the M and M's, there's the Smarties, right? There is Twizzlers. It's so much better for snacks. Well, taste the rainbow. You remember that? Well, taste the rainbow. And now, taste the mustard. In celebration of National Mustard Day, who knew, which is on August 5th, Skittles has partnered with French's to make its first ever mustard-flavored Skittle. I was hoping it was just going to say mustard-colored. <laughs> All right, the candy is described as having a tangy mustard flavor. Don't expect it to see, do not expect to see it on store shelves. However, fans can enter an online sweepstakes for a chance to win a package. Okay, CBS News right there. French is called the new yellow sweet confectionery classic that lives at the intersection of condiment and candy. French's is already well-known brand in Canada. That's staple of many uh, Canuck refrigerators. Even their beloved yellow mustard itself is made from stone ground 100% Canadian mustard seeds. Sadly, though, the mustard Skittles likely won't be found in your local candy aisle. They will be distributed in person, in person at pop-up events only in the States. The Mustard Mobile, a branded yellow vintage bus, will be there. Adventurous eating Canadians who want to try their mustard Skittles can enter to score a bag through an online sweepstakes on the French's website, which takes me to shiftheads.ca and our Facebook group and the ketchup ice cream that has been posted repeatedly 
for you, Ryan. Would you, okay, so mustard Skittles, would you try it? And you no. love ketchup, though. Ketchup ice cream. Uh, okay, so I would not try. If I, okay, so because they're limited and they're not being sold normally, if I like want a pack of these, I would try them out of curiosity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Would I enjoy it? I can almost guarantee you absolutely not. Ketchup flavored ice cream, I would try out of curiosity. I know it was at the Calgary Stampede, but I'm not waiting in line 30 minutes to get ice cream that might taste disgusting. So, uh, you yeah. You will wait but, 30 minutes for an onion. I did wait 30 minutes for an onion. <laughs> okay. Just to be clear. Would you take your mustard Skittles and sprinkle them over your ketchup ice cream? I think that'd be good. Uh, I think Miss Vicky's makes a spicy ketchup. They do. I had them for the first time ever this weekend. Yeah. Unreal. They're but that's delicious. basically, t- they taste like ketchup and mustard mixed together, really, is what they taste like. No, I got more of like ketchup and sriracha almost. That's no. kind of where I got. I didn't really no, your taste buds are wrong. <laughs> well, clearly, we're, this is a, 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 a hill neither of us will die on. You no. Know, in fact, I'm okay with being... Yeah. Uh, I'm okay with you being wrong about that one. Um, (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Are you okay with searching for something? Searching for something. Uh, No, no, I hate it. I mean, the reward of finding something and looking for it is great. But when I lost my grandpa's ring and had to get a metal detector to find it, waiting for the beep 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 was it was agony it was a total agony and then amazing reward mm. it's kind of like gambling that's the feeling it's like the impending mm. doom and then ooh, maybe a win or maybe not mm. i don't like that i prefer to not lose something okay um but you knew where the ring was in general i knew the general vicinity of the ring yes it was in grass wasn't it it was lost in some grass. Yes. Grass. So you knew that it was in the yard in the grass somewhere. Somewhere. Yep. So when you lose something and you can't figure out where you saw it last, where did I see it last? But you can't remember. And it's even worse when you're searching for something and you had it and you're like, I'm going to put this someplace safe so I don't forget. That's a terrible feeling. I lost my yep. wallet. I found it over a year later. I had set it on my shoe rack in the garage. It fell behind the shoe rack. Therefore, I could not find my wallet. I looked everywhere for that thing. So, I mean, sometimes, um, yeah, we often say that, you know, I lost my keys. No, you didn't lose them because you drove here. You misplaced them, then you found them. The only difference between misplacing something and losing something is giving up, really. Valid. Okay. Uh, A little lost things philosophy for you. Last week, the world was looking for Carly Russell, a woman who seemingly vanished. The disappearance of the Alabama woman garnered international attention and set off a massive search by the Hoover police. (laughs) It's the place, not the vacuum. It was starting to sound like the movie Taken, starring Liam Neeson. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom... I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Nice guy. It turns out that the giant search was unwarranted because she was never taken in the first place. She later returned to her home and filed a police report. Suspicions about uh, Russell began to arise when police said they were unable to verify most of her claims in the initial statement. She claimed that she was abducted by two people after stopping to assist a child who was alone on the side of the interstate. She said she was forced into an 18-wheeler truck and taken to a home where a man and a woman forced her to strip naked while they took photos of her. Police later learned that Russell had conducted suspicious online searches shortly before going missing. Oh, that pesky browser history coming in again. 
She looked up the abduction-themed movie Taken, how to pay for an Amber Alert, and how to take money from a register without getting caught. Russell was scheduled for a police interview Monday with her lawyer, but instead she provided the statement admitting the abduction was made up. Uh, WHNT News 19 is where we got our reports from this on it. And potential charges could be laid against her later today. Um, still no real reason as to why she, uh, that why that particular story. Um, I don't know. I guess if you're bored, I don't know, like kidnapped. I don't know if that's the way to go. Or maybe she just really wanted to meet Liam Neeson. Ooh, could be, Mm -hmm. could be doubtful. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.